episode, we hear from neuroscientist Dr Hannah Critchlaw, who shows us how our brains synchronise, ideas emerge and moral values align. Given the challenges we face, we need our best thinking, and Hannah can show us how. Okay, so my background's neuroscience, and I'm going to be chatting to you now about collective intelligence, so how our brains can start to work together, how we can start to harness that cognitive capacity that's available within each one of us, but also how we can start to, I'm going to think like a little bit uh, kind of, I don't know, this is a little bit mean, but how we can start to harvest the intellectual capacity of the people around us as well, how we can start to work together more effectively, build a consensus and learn from each other that more effectively. Um, And this is important because, as you know, we are facing a number of existential challenges and, and, and we really need to start harvesting our intelligence that sits within our brain so that we can start to tackle some of these incredible issues that we're facing as as a species. And so we are capable, clearly, as a species of achieving great things. There's no point just sitting down and being frightened by some of the prospects of the future for humanity. If we look around us and think about some of the inspirational artwork or inspirational architecture that humans have created, or we think about some of the amazing technological and engineering developments that allow us to communicate with each other as never before and share our reality with each other as never before and open up our realities as well. We are clearly capable of great things. And since both the good things and the bad things uh, that humanity is capable of of actually starts within our brain, I think as a neuroscientist, it makes sense for us to start to understand how our brains operate, how they make decisions, and how we interact with the environment as well. So I want to um, take do a little experiment with you to start our exploration of this big topic. So I'm going to ask you all to close your eyes. I'm going to ask you to imagine that you are in a position of power. So I'm going to ask you to close your eyes, imagine you're in a position of power. So imagine that you are a high court judge, perhaps, sitting over a really important case and your decision is final. Or perhaps imagine that you are a referee at a football match and again, your decision is final. Or you're chair of a committee meeting. So you have a big amount of influence over the people around you. So sink into that feeling of power. And then I'm going to ask you to take the index finger of the hand that you write with and trace the letter E on your forehead. So trace the letter E on your forehead and remember the sensation of you doing that. So what I noticed there was that some of you trace the letter E in a capital E and some of you a lowercase e. That doesn't tell you anything. That doesn't make any difference whatsoever. (laughs) It's just something that some people do. However, what most of you were doing there was tracing the E in a way that made sense for you so that you could read it inside, but it would have been mirror reversed so anybody outside wouldn't have been able to see it as an E. So the vast majority, not all of you, but the vast majority of you were tracing that E for your own mind's eye. And what studies have shown is that when people are in a position of power, or even if they're simply imagining they're in a position of power, they are, first of all, much likely to trace that letter E in a way that makes sense to them. They're also much more likely 
to think ego, egocentrically. So to think about themselves and to only think about the information that they might have access to rather than think about the information that other people might be privileged to. So being in a position of power, being a leader, actually increases egocentricity. There's study after study after study that's shown this. Um, and dampens down our awareness, or our ability to think of other people. And when we look in the brain, what we can see is that being in a position of power, or simply imagining you're in a position of power, actually has profound effects on the neural circuitry. So first of all, it dampens down the mirror neuron circuit, which is embedded deep within our brain, and it's a circuit that's thought to be involved in how we empathize with other people and how we can connect with them. And being in a position of power actually dampens down the electrical activity there. There's another thing that happens within the nervous system when you're in a position of power. And it's a dampening down or a desensitization of something called the vagus nerve. Now, the vagus nerve is a bundle of nerves that runs from the brain all the way, connecting from the brain right down the spinal cord and then connecting to the organs in the body. Because within our body, we always think that we think with our head, and particularly neuroscientists have always thought you know, that you think with your head. But actually, there's a huge number of nerve cells within your body. A large amount of them reside within the gut, but also within the heart. And they're connected to our brain via this vagus nerve. Now, there's a lot of information from the outside world, from other people, that gets stored within this peripheral nervous system, within this so-called embodied cognition that we each contain. So if you like, you could think about it as the collective wisdom of the outside world being stored within our bodies and then connected to our individual brains via this vagus nerve. And what they found is that when people are in a position of power, that vagal nerve sensitivity, that connection to that wisdom from the outside world, actually starts to be diminished. It gets desensitized. So you can see how this might have evolved as a sensible evolutionary strategy. Because if you think about it, being in a position of power, being a leader, means that you have to make difficult decisions sometimes. And you can't be too easily swayed by all of the emotions and all of the thoughts of everybody in the outside world. But obviously, it can reach a tipping point whereby it goes too far in the wrong direction and you start to become what could be viewed as an unempathetic, egocentric leader that's abusing their position of power. So bearing this in mind, is there anything that we can do to help protect ourselves against this biological mechanism that seems to take place in each and every one of us? Well, yes, it seems that there might well be. So this study, and there's another little experiment that I'm going to ask you to take part in in a second, but this study actually came from a really, I think, quite an unlikely source. So um, there's a guy called John Coates. Uh, I met him at Cambridge University. He was there retraining as a neuroscientist at the Judge Business School, and he was doing this really cool study. Um, but he was inspired by the study from his days working as a trader back in the day on Wall Street, working in the financial kind of um, financial arena. And he was really successful. He made a huge amount of money. 
And he was kind of like scratching his head thinking, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good, I know. But what is it about me that makes me so successful, that makes me so good at making decisions, really quick decisions, that bring me this massive financial reward? And he had a hunch of an idea, which is why he took his idea and his money and he retrained in neuroscience to investigate it. So I'm going to ask you all to kind of take part in one of John Coates' studies. I'm going to ask you, if you feel like you're able to, to stand up and do 30 seconds of exercise. I can see that some people might not be interested in doing this. You don't have to. <laughs> you know, you absolutely don't have to. But if you want to, like, I don't know. So I like running on the spot. If, I like... if your friend's looking a bit lazy, you can always carry them whilst you're doing this exercise. <laughs> so which, the, the aim here is to get our hearts pumping. So our hearts... Provide all of the oxygen to our body. 30 seconds. Yeah, yeah, that's brilliant. Thank you. So, yeah, we're getting our hearts pumping. Our brains actually consume something like 20% of our daily energy quota. Uh, they require huge amounts of oxygen in order to create all the electrical uh, signals, which allow us to process information from the outside world to um, create our sense of reality and then instruct us how to move. Only 20 seconds left, everyone. Our hearts are pumping really hard now. They're sending oxygen whizzing around. Oh, yeah, there's some... There's some are you doing burpees or bumpies or something? Oh, my God, they're going for it here. <laughs> Okay. Oh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful there in the purple throng. Woo! Well, we've done it, Shambhala's. Okay, and now we can sit. So, um, so now we've got our heart pumping. I'm going to ask you to just now spend the next 30 seconds listening to your heart, listening to that heartbeat. And if it helps, because there's a lot going on in the background. Just feel it too. Listen to your heartbeat. So what John Coates found is that um, traders that had a better heartbeat detection ability, so they're better able to tune into their hearts and kind of estimate how fast it was beating, those traders actually made more money <laughs> um, and actually their heartbeat detection ability predicted how much profit they were able to make in the next year of economic downturn so he did this um, study during the economic decline in 2008 um, and when he compared financial traders that were successful to, to students at Cambridge University, a.k.a. controls in the world of science at Cambridge University, what he found was that the traders were much better, significantly better, at listening to their heartbeat and being able to detect it and give an, an, an average of how fast it's beating. So Sarah Garfinkel, she's a professor at University College London, she's been doing some preclinical trials looking at how we can all start to listen to our heartbeat a little bit better and do exercises like the one that I just did with you so that we can start to tap in to that information that's held within our embodied cognition and start to listen to that collective intelligence from the world around us that otherwise we might be so stuck in our head that we'd be avoiding and ignoring. 
There's also some incredible studies that have just come out from neuroscience in the last five years or so, looking at how when brains of people, when people are working together and they're learning from each other and they're building consensus and they're problem solving effectively together, what you can actually start to see is that their brain waves, their electrical oscillations across their brain start to become aligned. They start to become synchronized with each other. And the degree of synchronicity actually helps to predict how well that group of people will be working together. So if we know that, is there anything that we can do to help boost brain synchronicity to help people work together, whether they're working together as friends, family, or colleagues at work? Well, yes, there is, and it's all kind of quite intuitive things that we can do. So, for example, looking each other in the eye directly, that helps to boost brain synchronicity. If we were to exercise together like we just all have, that actually helps to boost brain synchronicity as well. And if we were to sing together, that would help to boost brain synchronicity. So if you look back across many different spiritual practices, you can see these types of activities taking place. Chanting, singing together, um, communities, exercising together. So we each of us have... 3.2 billion base pairs of nucleotides that we were given from our mum and dad in the genes that were given from the sperm and the egg that combined in a really unique way to give rise to this blueprint, this genetic blueprint that encoded how our nervous system in our brains but also in our bodies was going to be start to be put together. And there's something in the region of 86 billion nerve cells within each of our brains and each one of those nerve cells connects up to 10,000 other nerve cells to create something in the region of 86 trillion connections within our brains. Again, all dictated really by the genes that were given from our mum and dad but also by the experiences that we have. And that circuit board, that highly individual, unique circuit board, so your circuit board is different to the circuit board of the person next to you, to your brothers or to your sisters even. So everybody has a really unique circuit board. And it's that circuit board which basically dictates how we process information from the outside world to create our sense of reality, to instruct us how to interact with the world. And each one of us, because of the sheer power of those numbers, each one of us sees the world in a slightly different way, interacts with it in a slightly different way. But what they found, and we each have our individual strengths and we each have our individual weaknesses or kind of cognitive biases. What they found in study after study after study is that actually when you bring a group of people together, what you get is a balancing out of those biases and an amplification of the intelligence So you can start to balance out from any weaknesses from the individual and start to build on the strengths. And so as a group of individuals, we can start to create more, to create more meaning, to create a more accurate representation of the world and to have more intelligence on offer. And that's why embedded deep within our neural circuitry, going back throughout our evolutionary history, this was really important. It was fundamental for our survival. We have this social circuit within our brain that means that we get joy from interacting with each other. Sometimes some people can be a pain in the arse. It is true. But generally speaking, you know, we're not plants, so we can also move away from the people perhaps that we find difficult sometimes. <laughs> but, um, but generally speaking, you know, we get joy from interacting with other people from learning from them, from discussing with them, and from creating ideas with them. And that's because it's embedded deep within our neural circuitry to do that. And it also means that actually when we operate as a group, we can achieve more. Mm. And I'm going to kind of 
Leave yeah. it there for now so that we've hopefully got some but time you feel for that questions. You've got, you've got the foundational concepts and the evidence. I've got the foundational... Down. Yeah, the foundational concepts have been... I mean, I suppose my... Um, so, hi, I'm a Luddite in the room. I'm also very curious about this. So I'm going to ask a few questions. We're also going to open it up to people. I suppose when we go straight to um, the applied end of some of this work, because you've been in quite a few interesting rooms with quite a few interesting people, maybe look to you for stuff. So let's say, you know, you're in a room with um, a bunch of decision makers, political decision makers in the Middle East. Um, why have they brought you into the room? What are they expect, how are they expecting to benefit from your work? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. Over the last few years, um, businesses that have access and governments that have access to a huge amount of financial resource, so fossil fuel industries, for example, mm. or government officials in the Middle East, mm. they have a deep understanding that they are going to have to do quite a large amount of mental gymnastics in order to start innovating um, and th thinking creatively so mm. that they can continue as a business into the future. And that's mm. going to mean for them really changing the way that they operate. And in order to change the way that you operate, what you actually have to do... So I did my PhD looking at how we create connections within our brain, within a region of the brain called the hippocampus, which is involved in learning and memory, and how that then extends and reaches out to the prefrontal cortex, which is a region here that affects our decision-making. So when we change a habit in our behaviour, or when we have to learn something new, or when we are um, faced with a number of people that have wildly conflicting viewpoints to ours, what has to happen within our brain is that we have to deconstruct or um, kind of... Um, demolish some connections within our brain and rebuild new connections in our brain in order to take on board these new perspectives and to start to think in new ways. And it can be, it, it's very physically demanding. And already our brain consumes something like 20% of our daily energy quota. And to change your mind and to do all those mental gymnastics actually requires a huge amount of flexibility and plasticity. Mm. Um, and so these, these companies, these businesses are aware that they need to change mm. and that you know it is coming um, and they they want to make sure that they they're capable of it i suppose the changes you're talking about which are possible within a group um conversely will be much harder to achieve individually certainly i mean the, the thing is is that um I'm, I'm talking about the positives of groups but obviously there are there can be some you know really negative things that groups of people have created as well so for example we know that um war alone is estimated to have killed between 150 and a billion people um and you know, we, we've created a situation where, you know, we're diminishing the resources that we rely on as a species. Mm. Um, and we've also created a situation where something in the region of 800,000 people each year around the world commit suicide. So we, we're obviously capable of really some, some quite atrocious behaviour. And when groups of people get together, actually there can be this um, effect within the brain where actually groups of people some, sometimes feel safer. There's a safety in numbers. And so they actually make, they can make less intelligent decisions mm. because they feel safer. So there's a, there's a lot going on. You've, I suppose, created evidence which says, or um, your colleague has created uh, evidence that says, if you have a group, you have greater ability to produce more diverse solutions and to be more resilient. And that's not just um, someone's articulation or something, it's something someone believes. It's evidenced, and it's also there in terms of how our brains work and respond to things. Is that about right? That's correct, yeah, yeah. So there's, um, I mean, just to talk really briefly about some of the evidence, when you plough through, so um, 
some researchers in the States have ploughed through the last decade worth of scientific publications. They've looked at 20 million different scientific publications and they've looked at 2 million patents that have come out in the last decade. And what they found time and time and time again is that the most successful publications that have the most impact, i.e. they get translated into an intellectual property kind of um, Mm. product, Mm. uh, is when teams of people from diverse uh, groups come together. Um, and they, mm. that also leads to more cited, impactful research as well, not just the result of a patent. Um, and when, again, you, you average uh, economic forecasters, their um, individual analysis for what's going to be happening in the year ahead, you can see time and time again that actually over the year, the average of the economic forecasters' projection is more accurate than any individual over that time span by themselves. <laughs> So, yeah, greater diversity means greater accuracy in predictions as well. So so that's why it's really important to get a team of people that have got genetically, they're different, but also Mm. they've had different experiences. They've also got different ages because across the lifespan, we can see that there's really distinct neurological changes that occur. So we all know that children are very playful. They're very creative. They can think in very lateral ways. And there's a huge amount of plasticity and changes that are occurring in their brain that allow this to happen. And then, you know, as we go through life, uh, thinking, we, we start to accrue more and more knowledge, more not, um, wisdom. And actually what happens is that our brains start to place less weighting on the information from the outside world and place more weighting on the knowledge that we've accrued within our brains. So that can be why some older people come across as a bit stubborn and narrow-minded. But they literally, they literally are not listening quite as much or they're placing less weighting on the information that's coming in from the current situation, which again makes sense as an evolutionary strategy because as you get older, your eyesight or your hearing or your, the way that you sense the world, those senses can start to fail as well. So it makes sense to start to weigh more information on all of that knowledge that you've accrued from the decades before. So again, there's different ways of thinking. There's different strengths that are associated with different ages so it makes sense to have a team that's multi-generational uh, awesome and we've got five minutes and i really want to open up to audience questions so when you were talking about brain synchronicity in a group how do you measure that when you're talking about brain waves like how does that work oh okay so this is really 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 cool um so a few years ago the first time that i met sophie actually when i uh, spoke at the imaginarium i brought my eug machine uh so basically you put on a few electrodes um around the the kind of head and then through the scalp you can through the skull you can start to measure the electrical oscillations that are being emitted from the nerve cells those 86 billion nerve cells that are within the brain as they send signals across that nerve circuit so they basically send signals by pumping sodium and potassium ions in and out of the nerve cell membrane brain and that because they're charged ions it creates basically an electric current which zips across at speeds of around 120 miles an hour and there's different frequencies of electrical oscillations that are associated with different ways of thinking so alpha waves for example are really nice and slow and that's associated with creative calm thought Gamma waves are the fastest speed of electrical oscillation, and that's associated with allowing joined-up thinking within your own brain. So you can send quick signals, so you can access all of the information that's held across all of the disparate circuits across your brain. Um, and meditation has been thought to increase those, that gamma wave activity, which is, is really interesting to think meditation, which is kind of stillness and kind of being present, actually causes 
greater frequencies of electrical oscillations in the brain. Anyway, so all of that was found by analysing one person, hooking them up to the EEG machine. But more recently, scientists have been looking at hooking different people up at the same time and then observing them as they're working together. And you can also put them in brain scanners as well and start getting them to work together with a screen. Yeah. And you start to see all of that activity sync up. There was this experiment in connectivity called the internet. Um, how do you think it's going? Is it like a good thing or a bad thing? So as the final question, I'd rate that quite highly. <laughs> I mean, yeah, that is the, that is the ultimate uh, connector, isn't it? I mean, it's really fascinating that over the last 30 years or so, all of these technologies, well, I mean, going back even further, as a species, we have been compelled to create these technologies that are allowing us to communicate more effectively, you know, at speeds as never before. We're able to navigate the world and talk to each other and communicate with each other in ways that we never have before. And we are being compelled to create all of these technologies that are connecting us up. And there's a big movement within science that's thinking that perhaps we're undergoing a major evolutionary transition towards the creation of a mega-connected supergroup, almost like creating a supermind uh, out there. In terms of how we're going with the internet specifically, I mean, there might be some teething problems. We might be going through the troublesome two phase, I don't know. I, um, yeah, I, think the, I think the internet, as someone who grew up as a child, uh, where my son actually said recently, he was saying, oh, when you were a kid, didn't you just search up something or other? And I was like, oh, no, on your phone. And I was like, well, I didn't have a phone. We didn't have mobile phones there. We had like CFAX yeah. <laughs> when I was in my 20s and I booked my holiday there, but we didn't really have the internet quite so much. Um, and it's amazing how things have changed and how much information we now have, you know, at our fingertips to, to be able to access. Um, and I think there's definite positives to that, but there's also the flip side as well. One of the flip sides, which I, I want to touch on really briefly, if I can, is that some researchers, particularly um, this amazing researcher called Leila Mofrad, who's based up at Newcastle, she thinks that perhaps... Um, some of these technologies like the internet and teenagers and children growing up being able to access all this information, know exactly where they are in the world via Google Maps, the whole world already being mapped out, um, knowing when places are going to be open, what the opening times are and what's available to them in that shop. All of that basically creates a lower tolerance for uncertainty and a lower tolerance for ambiguity. And unfortunately, if we are to work together and to take on board other people's perspectives and take on life, which all has a genetic and experience basis, then we need to have a greater tolerance for uncertainty and a greater tolerance for ambiguity. And there might be a flip side to these, these technologies that we've been compelled to create that actually dampens down that um, tolerance level. Everyone, let's talk to Hannah Quick. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Hannah. You can find her book, Joined Up Thinking, on her website, which we've linked to in the show notes. It's a wonderful, uplifting and soulful read. Thanks to you for listening. Do join us for the next one.